0: I am not a professional in any field that matters when it comes to what I discuss. Always be skeptical and look into things on your own. I never just believe something I hear on a podcast, and you shouldn't either. Also, I swear, not all the time, but when I get excited or passionate, the cusses do come out. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for listening to Living Through Extinction. I'm Ruby Palmer, and this is episode 19. a state of emergency. Very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami. The sky turns oil. black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern... Good day, everyone. I would like to begin with an apology. I am sorry about the quality of last and possibly this episode as well. I was sick for a week, even got tested for COVID. And when it hit, I wasn't quite done tweaking episode 18, but I have a strangely high anxiety about missing a release, so I dragged myself out of bed and posted it as it was. Then I continued to be useless for a couple days, so fell behind on beginning this episode, and now I'm worried I'm not giving myself enough time to edit again, but I'm going to give it a solid shot. Have you all seen the articles about house bricks being used as batteries? It's unfortunately not technology we will be able to use for some time, but the potential is exciting. Red building bricks are porous, and they get their colour from iron oxide. And it is by using this component that the process begins. The bricks are bathed in hydrochloric acid vapour, which gets into the pores and reacts with the iron oxide, turning it into a reactive form of iron. It then interacts with another gas introduced through the pores of the bricks, creating a thin film of, I think it's pedot? P-E-D-O-T. It's a conductive plastic. This conductive film is made up of nanofibers, which can also penetrate the porous material due to the particle sizes. Once this is done, what you have isn't actually a battery, as the headlines are saying, but a supercapacitor. Supercapacitors store electricity as a static charge in solids, while our batteries today hold their charges through chemical reactions. A supercapacitor is known to charge and discharge faster than lithium-ion batteries and can be recharged up to 10,000 times before they begin to fail significantly. Unfortunately, they can currently only hold about 1% of the energy that lithium-ion batteries can hold. Of course, energy is everything these days, so there is no shortage of researchers around the world who are working on this puzzle of how to increase the energy density of supercapacitors. It'll happen one day. Julio Darcy of Washington University in St. Louis was a part of the research team. He said that if successful at matching the energy density of lithium-ion batteries, quote, it would be a different world, and you would not hear the words lithium-ion battery again. So far the first bricks have been able to power a small light. It has been successful with regular bricks, recycled bricks, and even bricks the researchers made themselves. With time, if capacity can be increased, this could become a low-cost alternative to the lithium batteries in every home today. The hope is that this research will eventually lead to a useful, renewable energy. Imagine if your home could be its own power source someday. Of course, we are a very long way from any practical applications at this time, but it does seem to offer some hope for a new renewable energy in the future. The weird and adorable Somali elephant shrew has kept hidden from our science and nature communities since 1968, but was rediscovered last year in the Horn of Africa. Now, the elephant shrew, also known as the jumping shrew, is neither an elephant nor a shoe. I love me a weird animal, and this one fits the bill perfectly. While this tiny mammal is about the size of a mouse, it is actually a distant relative of elephants, aardvarks, and manatees. If you are familiar with all of these animals, it's probably not that big a surprise, considering its trunk-like nose, which is used to suck up ants. Another feature of the elephant shrew that isn't normally found in animals of this size are the hind limbs, which are much closer to antelope or gazelle than to other small mammals, such as mice. This helps to make them one of the fastest animals of their size, hopping around at a whopping 30 kilometers per hour. And I wanna see it, I really do. I'm gonna have to look and see if there's some actual video out there. I saw pictures, but I didn't watch any video yet. I really wanna see this tiny little creature hopping around at 30 kilometers an hour. They remind me of the platypus in the way that they appear to be a mix of different animals we don't instinctively expect to see in one specimen. One site I was on described them as, quote, a cross between a mouse and a set of needle-nose pliers with a long, thin trunk, a scaly tail, powerful hind legs, and big glassy black eyes that will melt your heart. Ah, One of the researchers who was involved in the discovery, Stephen Heritage of Duke University, said when describing this little animal, quote, it's really a fascinating combination of mammal traits that aren't really found in any other order of mammals. Elephant shoe are also funny in that they mate for life, but there is nothing romantic about it. They have no use for being social and pair off into separate territories, but the pairs apparently do not appear to have any care or use for each other other than sharing the responsibility of protecting their territory and procreation. They even keep separate nests from each other. So these creatures are really interesting, and I can't wait to see what we may learn from them going forward. When thought to be lost, there was some solace in the few dozen preserved specimens at museums around the world, so study did not have to stop completely. But now, we are getting the first ever photos and videos, which is so much better. And the news for them is good. Not only have they been rediscovered, but they appear to be thriving in the area where they have been seen. There are currently no observed immediate threats to the habitat where they are living and it is apparently not easily accessible and far from farming and human developments, which is great. According to Kelsey Neem of Global Wildlife Conservation, this discovery is the first step in conservation. Now that they know the Somali elephant shrew is surviving and where, scientists and conservationists have a chance to protect it from disappearing again, yay! Another happy story in wildlife news. Hooray! Happy stories for a change. Red kites are a large, beautiful bird of prey from the same family as eagles and buzzards. Their underwings are magnificent to view. Do yourself a favor and Google some images of them flying from below. By the end of the 19th century, red kites were driven near extinction in England from human persecution and egg collecting. The first kite committee was formed in 1903, making it the longest continuous conservation project in history. Reintroduction to places where it was no longer seen began in the 90s, with 13 red kites released into the Chilterns by the RSPB and Natural England in July of 1990, 11 released in East Midlands in 1995, nine brought to central Scotland in 1996 and other locations throughout the years as well. There has been great success. In each case, nesting and breeding appears to have begun within two years of reintroduction. In 1996 at least 37 breeding pairs were in southern England and in 1999 the population had grown enough in the Chilterns to take chicks from there and reintroduce them to other parts of the country. Today there are more than 10,000 red kites across Britain, and possibly close to 2,000 breeding pairs are among them. This endeavour has been so successful that it is not possible to monitor all the nests, so the pairing numbers are estimated. This has proved to be one of the greatest conservation success stories ever, as there are now red kite populations in 10 different areas of the UK. In just a few decades, this species was brought back from the brink of extinction in the UK to the UK now containing almost 10% of the world's population. Jeff Knott of the RSPB said, it might be the biggest species success story in UK conservation history. Today, the main threats to these beautiful birds are illegal poisoning from baits left out for foxes and crows secondary poisoning from eating poisoned rodents, and collisions with power cables. These issues are all known, and precautions are being put in place by conservationists whenever possible. Some pretty cool stories in archaeology recently. Most people are probably at least aware of the Dead Sea Scroll fragments. Note, there appear to be both authentic and fraudulent fragments out there. There are these 51 pieces, which still appear to be authentic, that were donated to the University of Manchester in 1997, where they have been kept stored in the John Rylands Library. They were useless to biblical scholars because they were blank pieces, so they went to the university for study of the material and other things. But every decade brings on different ways to observe different things. Or sometimes we just need to come up with the idea to try something we've had for years on something it's never been tried on before some of the blank pieces of the scroll donated to the university have turned out not to be blank. 51 fragments that were all larger than a centimeter were photographed with multispectral imaging. This technique captures different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum, including some which are invisible to the naked eye. There were, and I quote Smithsonian Magazine, obvious lines of text on four of the fragments. I can't help but wonder if there's going to be an ownership issue now. They were only donated to the university because it was thought that there was not any script that could be used by biblical scholars. Now we know that's not true. I mean, I'm sure the university will share with the biblical scholars, but will the biblical scholars want ownership of the pieces now? And if they do, will the university be ready and willing to part with them? I have to continue to follow this story. And even more cool news in archaeology, what is being described as a hoard of Bronze Age relics have been unearthed in Scotland. Bronze is an alloy of copper and tin that was very popular from roughly 2100 to 750 BCE, which we now call the Bronze Age. And there has not been a discovery of this type in Scotland since 1864 when the Horse Hope Craig Horde was unearthed. Here we have another great discovery made by average people, in this case some friends with metal detectors. This past June, they uncovered something unique about 1.5 feet below the surface, and their detectors were hitting on many more possible finds in the same area. The group contacted Scotland's Treasure Trove Unit to report the finds, and they and National Museum Scotland were on the site within days. Archaeologists spent 22 days investigating the site, which dates from around 1,000 to 900 BCE, and found all sorts of amazing specimens. The best part, organic materials like leather and wood were preserved by the soil in the area, making this an even rarer find than if only the bronze had survived. Among their finds were a sword in its scabbard, decorated straps, buckles, rings, ornaments, and chariot wheel axle caps. Altogether, there was an entire horse harness, so well preserved, that experts are actually able to see how Bronze Age harnesses were assembled, which is a first in modern times. There's even evidence of a decorative rattle pendant that would have hung off of the harness. Rattle pendants were small bronze objects on rings, which scholars believe were attached to horse harnesses as both ornaments and noisemakers. This evidence of one of these rattle pendants is the first found in Scotland and only the third in all of the UK. The Scotland Treasure Trove Unit publicly thanks the finders for acting as quickly as they did in contacting them. I'm glad they acknowledged them because I believe citizen science is important. Sometimes it's up to you or me to do the right thing and contact the proper departments. We never know what something strange we stumble across may actually mean to the development of our knowledge. And why are we here, if not to keep learning? For this episode, I decided to look into Pete, and along with peat, peatlands obviously. It's something I didn't know much about until I did my research for this episode. Not too long ago, I talked about the issues around the massive amounts of carbon being released from all the permafrost that is and will continue to be thawing. A great deal of this permafrost is made up of a very important habitat from the wetlands category called peatlands. While only 3% of the planet's land is made up of peatlands, these peatlands make up nearly half of the world's wetlands which are incredibly important natural ecosystems peatlands are critical for preserving global diversity and providing safe drinking water to the world and they are the largest terrestrial carbon store we know of in fact peatlands store more carbon than all other vegetation types in the world combined and that has helped to keep the world cool peat itself also known as turf is a soil made up of almost entirely organic matter from the remains of dead and decaying plant material. It is found in bogs, mires, moors, muskegs or peatlands, places where wetland conditions where flooding or stagnant water obstructs the flow of oxygen from the atmosphere, slowing the rate of decomposition. This slowing down in decomposition allows peat deposits to provide records of past vegetation and climate by preserving plant remains over thousands of years. This is valuable for climate scientists who can reconstruct past environments and study changes in land use with the information provided from the contents of the past. Peat is harvested for fuel in some parts of the world, but the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change does not classify it as either a fossil fuel or a renewable fuel. Its emissions characteristics are similar to fossil fuels, but it is not a fossil fuel and it cannot be considered a renewable source because of how its extraction rate far exceeds its regrowth. Peat only grows about one to two millimeters per year. Peatland soils can contain 80 to 100% organic matter, and most are found in Canada and Russia, but they occur in almost every country. The term peatland refers to the peat soil and the wetland habitat growing on its surface. Common factors are fresh water, cool or wet climate, high latitudes of the northern hemisphere, oceanic environments, and moist tropical areas. There is a group called the Global Peatlands Initiative, which, and I quote, aims to bring countries and partners together to save peatlands as the world's largest terrestrial organic carbon stock and thus prevent releases of CO2 into the atmosphere. That's a pretty admirable initiative to anyone concerned about global warming. So many great things are offered by our peatlands. Unfortunately, when humans come along and drain or burn these peatlands for agricultural purposes, which is apparently way too common, they go from being a carbon sink to a carbon source. Then there's the fact that about half of the world's peatlands are currently frozen. Huge amounts of carbon are stored in these boggy frozen regions and much of it is expected to thaw before the end of this century. A quote from a BBC.com article titled Warming World Will Be Devastating for Frozen Peatlands says the carbon emitted through thawing and from losses of peat into rivers and streams is 30 to 50 percent greater than in previous projections of carbon losses from permafrost thawing. Unfortunately, the only real way to limit these issues is going to be to reduce global warming. I guess we got to get everyone to believe in it first. However, apparently, if we invest to protect and restore non-frozen peatlands, the bogs can continue to soak up and store large amounts of CO2. There is debate on how long it will take thawing peatlands to reach a point where they are once again growing plants and storing rather than releasing gases. While some still believe it may happen sooner than recently reported, The truth of the matter is that our newest studies say it may be a couple of centuries before once-frozen peatlands start absorbing large amounts of CO2 again. Our best bet is to continue to study these parts of the world and preserve when and where we can. In the end, what we know is that damaging these peatlands releases greenhouse gas emissions, while restoring them equals a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So it's kind of a no-brainer at this point. happy time. So here's what's been making me happy recently. Many of us have actually been doing this it turns out. With all of us spending this time at home, I know it's different for everyone, not everyone got to spend any time at home. I personally was working only half time for quite some time. It's become quite popular to look at live streams, specifically ones of nature, zoos, aquariums, animal live streams. It's something I've been really enjoying and I know Everyone's watching their favorite animals right now. It's not unique. Many podcasts have also talked about their favorite streams already in the last few months. But this is my happy segment and some of these feeds make me really happy. So I guess I'm just going to have to go with the crowd for once in my life. And here I go. Maybe I'll mention one that you haven't come across yet. The Vancouver Aquarium has a few live feeds available. I spent a ridiculous amount of time in the Jellycam feed. Bloody mesmerizing. Definitely my favorite. My favorite. I've had bad luck so far with the penguin cam. When I tune in, there's never really any activity to see. And then they have the otters. I love watching otters, and they have both overhead and underwater cameras for the otters. But I always go back to the jelly cam feed. If you only go look at one animal feed, if you haven't looked at any yet, go to the jelly cam at the Vancouver Aquarium. Just trust me on this one. If bears are your thing, there are live feeds from four enclosures at CanadianBearHabitat.com. I grew up in the country. I've seen plenty of bears up front and in person. That one didn't interest me quite as much, but hey, go for it. If you like fish, there is the Coral City Camera, a public art and science project. Anyone can tune in anytime. Just go to coralcitycamera.com to check it out. Were you aware that there is a Smithsonian National Zoo? I was not until the last few months watching animal feeds while being home so much. The Smithsonian National Zoo also has feeds, and at their site you can see black-footed ferret, naked mole rats, a cheetah cub, a giant panda, and more. The site is found at nationalzoo.si.edu. The San Diego Zoo has a plethora of feeds to choose from. My personal favorites are the hippos, elephants, and giraffe. But some other camera choices are pandas, penguins, platypus, baboon, tigers, and more there are more places than i can mention here but if you want the largest selection all in one place there's a site at earthcam.com with links to feeds in the united states england ireland indonesia botswana pick a link of somewhere you have never been and watch some great animal feeds it's definitely something i have been enjoying during my time in lockdown and i guess that's all i've got for today before i sign off i'd like to inform you about a podcast festival coming in september if you are a podcast fan, a podcast creator, or maybe thinking about starting a podcast and wondering where to begin, you should check it out. The Manitoba Podcast Festival is on the social medias, so mark September 26th and 27th on your calendar, and go find and follow them for updates as they are made available. Thank you for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily in these mad times. Be kind, be respectful, and don't claim knowledge you don't have. A skeptic knows it's always okay to say, I don't no. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro outro of the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. References will be in the show notes. Please join me in two weeks for episode 20 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed what you just heard and would like to support the show, doing so will also help plant trees. Review the tiers on Patreon under Living Through Extinction to learn how. Funds are tight for most these days, so if you do not wish to contribute financially, you can still support the show by subscribing, five-starring, commenting when reviewing, and sharing the show with your friends. Other ways to help are as simple as liking and following on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As much as financial support is appreciated, non-financial support is also super important for the show right now. About 100 homes. The governor of Missouri declared a- very serious situation here in Hawaii. Earlier this evening, the uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami a threat. The sky turns all... black as giant tornadoes touch down. From Nebraska to Texas, apocalyptic scenes as twisters tear through the southern plains.